Run, run, fast as you can, and welcome to Home Age Conversations, a podcast about the residents. You can't catch me, I'm Mew, and I wonder what it's like to be one of them. I think they're the cootie wooties. I'm Kat, and I need someone to help me. Look, look, hard as you can. You can't say me. I'm Mole, and I'll be buried with my Ted Williams cards. And I'm Rabbit, and whatever happened to music? Poor old family of man, never mind me, I'm just Sparky, and damn this knife is dull. So, as you all have just heard, we have a guest host with us today. It is the lovable, the huggable, the sensational Sparky, who is the former host of the first podcast about the residents, known as the Bogcast. Hi, Sparky. Hello. Hi, Sparky. Hi, Sparky. He's also known as Spanky, by the way. Spanky, spanky, spunky, 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 spang, S-man. So, our topic for today is The Gingerbread Man, which was a multimedia project the residents did in 1994, and a little bit beyond, because with the nature of multimedia, if it's the 90s, by the time you've put out something, new technology has emerged and the residents just can't get enough of that. It could even be said that they can't get no satisfaction. Um, Very nice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and it's based on the like the nursery rhyme of the same name, you know, the Gingerbread Man. I had never heard of this before. Um, maybe it's. Had some... you really? I, yeah, I'd never heard of the Gingerbread Man. Wait, are you and... serious? Yes, <laughs> I even watched Shrek and I didn't get it. Oh my god! Oh, you you never, you never read uh, uh, the Stinky Cheese Man. Oh, uh, was that in there? What? The what now? It's like a whatever. <laughs> yeah, okay. It, it's yeah, a parody no. of the gingerbread man. It's like, what? When you're like, I thought it was like, its own independent thing. Wait, wait. So you thought, oh my god. So what's, you thought. What's interesting about the gingerbread man for me is I've known this since I was a child, yet the residence version has completely taken over any understanding I had of it to the point that. I don't even know if there was any sort of melody or rhythm that the gingerbread man actually sings in the story, or if what I know and always sing is just what the residents created. That is, that's true. I, I've thought that there was like a well-established gingerbread man song. I was going to look it up and listen to it a bunch while like researching for this episode, and I could not find a just a, a canonical version of the song. I thought like <laughs> the residents. I did the um, exact same thing thinking, Oh, I I'm going to yeah. find something with the residents melody to it that they took. Nope. Doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was kind of like, <clears throat> I was like looking it up on YouTube. Cause I was like, well, if it's a real thing, I better get familiarized with it. Um, and with sort of the nature of YouTube and nursery rhymes, I expected approximately a hundred thousand videos of, some generic female voice singing oh. this this theme um probably like not in a minor key but still a song no they were all just readings of of the story yeah <clears throat> but the beauty right. is in my mind of kindergarten and first grade what i'm hearing in my memory is the residence I'm, yeah that's pretty crazy i'm still a child and i just now learned about this gingerbread man thing <laughs> I even I, I think I believed it more because at the end of the album they have a child singing 
their gingerbread man theme. So I was like, oh, I see. I get it now. Um, I, yeah, I feel like that that is definitely part of it. <clears throat> well, for other people who aren't familiar with the nursery rhyme, does someone want to explain what happens in it? Uh, yeah, so it's about an old couple who wanted to have a son. So they cooked some gingerbread cookies and they made a little gingerbread boy. And this little gingerbread boy, I guess, upon emerging from the sheet, becomes a gingerbread man um, <laughs> and runs away. Cue the Benny Hill theme. Everybody's chasing after this, this little gingerbread man and he tries to cross a river. And this fox is there and it's like, hey, buddy, I got you. And the gingerbread man's like, aren't you going to eat me? And the fox says, nah, nah, you're good. And they make it across the river. And then immediately this gingerbread um, man, this sentient being is consumed. Um, and as far as I know, that's the end of the story. But of course, the residents looked at that and said, we can do better. We can do something different. And who boy did they. And while we could probably go into what that twist was, they actually explained it themselves um, during the Fillmore 1997 performance uh, of a collection of their 90s works, but they introduced a section for the Gingerbread Man and give the audience a little bit of history on the mystery. Well, a little bit more background, because we weren't given that much in the album. Run, run as fast as you can. Everybody knows the story of the Gingerbread Man. But back in the swamps of Louisiana, where the cottonmouths compete with the garfish and the gaspergoo for breathing room down in the murky black bayous, they tell a different story. In their version, the cookie man somehow escapes his usual fate, and he becomes the hunter instead of the prey. But being more spirit than substance, this gingerbread man has an unusual appetite. And he feeds on energy. Dark, brooding, soul-sucking energy. Like a lion eyeing a limpid gazelle. The cookie man knows an easy mark. And the human race offer more than they can count. Tonight, we'll meet a few of the gingerbread man's favorites. So the album itself 
is based around nine characters, all of them bearing their own portraits and their own thoughts, which basically makes up most of the music and follows a certain theme. Yeah, I think they did a lot of like character portraits in the 90s um, as they were shifting away from what they'd been doing in the past, which was a lot more broad storytelling. Like with Mark of the Mole, you don't get specific individuals, but it seems like they kind of build up into individual characters because then you, you had Freak Show and then you had Gingerbread Man, which seems like a pretty natural progression there. Um, and right after that, you had things like Bad Day on the Midway and then Wormwood, who also had that. And almost to an extent up to Demon's Dance alone. Yeah. 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 And I think it shows up even like in the 2010s with like the ghost stories from Talking Light or the shadow stories from Shadowland or even um, like the little movies they did for In Between Dreams. Or. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Or even, or even Randy for The Wonder of Weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Gingerbread Man is very unique uh, in the way the residents do this sort of character portrait thing in that they have this unifying theme across the album, which they don't ever really do in any other projects. That's exactly what I was going to get into. Gingerbread Man seems to be a very divisive album amongst uh, (laughs) new and old fans alike because... Every track follows a formula to an extent. No two tracks, if you really listen to them, really are alike at all, except they follow a formula of Ginger's theme, followed by uh, kind of the outward thoughts and emotions of one of the characters, followed by internal struggles and strife that they might not share otherwise, followed by an outro. And to many people listening to it for the first time, they might just hear Ginger's theme playing at the beginning of each track and think that every song sounds the same. When really it's just a great use of leet motive whenever this gingerbread man is, is present, knowing that we all have a gingerbread man inside of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also what makes it so distinct and I think this is an aspect that a lot of people end up missing, is that um, because of the multimedia aspect of the album in the first place, you know, it's more than an album. It came with, uh, like, one version of it, when you put it into, into a computer, it was its own sort of CD-ROM program that would allow you to kind of manipulate the, um, the songs to an extent. Um, so hitting certain keys would make images change or appear and make text show up or play like sound clips from the characters thoughts and busts of the characters were present um, on the screen and they were spinning around you could sort of make them go all over Um, and those busts were made by um, Lee Barbier who would collaborate with the residents a lot more with further projects and she had already been involved with the residents and because she collaborated with homer for the freak show painting oh right oh oh man yeah that yeah oh i totally forgot all about that um there's a lot of collaboration going on with uh with this album and this project as a whole 
the whole album seems to be kind of a uh, a not to say a swan song, but a a great homage to all the people that they had been working with over the past decade, plus some special guests such as Todd Rundgren, as well as the introduction of a resident staple with Molly Harvey. Yeah. And, uh, and how we love her so much. Yeah, and there was um there were some other guest vocalists on there too, such as Lori Ma, um, Diana Alden, and Isabel Barbier, who like couldn't have been older than what, like six? Can I mon- can I mention one last funny thing about the CD ROM? Yes. Um so when I first uh, got the Gingerbread Man expanded CD, probably around 2003, um, I had a relatively new, uh, what were they called, PowerBook G4. What? Apintosh, Macintosh computer. Oh. And it was able to run the disc, but what it would turn out is that the expanded CD-ROM portion of it was programmed in such a way that... With the, with the idea that most computers wouldn't be able to handle the level of graphics that were required to play it, it was programmed to play at the highest speed your computer was capable of playing, knowing that there shouldn't be a cap because they wanted the animations to play, you know, as fast as the fastest computer could handle them. The problem is, only six, seven years later, computers have gotten so much faster, so much in such a short amount of time beyond what any programmer could have imagined that the game is borderline unplayable because it moves so quick with such absolute lightning speed seizure-inducing speed you just can't even open it anymore if you played it on like a modern say gaming pc gamers rise up then it would probably just be over in like a second it, yep, the audio would play at a regular rate, and the animation would be over in less than a second. So, perhaps, could it be said that it runs runs mm. as fast as it can? Oh, no. Hey, Mole. <laughs> yes, yeah. it absolutely can. Yeah, Mole, can I talk to you real quick? Can I have a sidebar? Yeah, yeah what's up? Um... Leave. I don't want to host this podcast at the end. Um, well, my conversation is, is uh, canceled. This will be our last episode. That was it was a, a good podcast residence while it lasted. Um, fun fact, actually, about that is there are some games that come out today um, that still do that. that what? Run as fast as I can, and um, yeah, <laughs> people yeah, still don't um, learn. And then eventually computers get super fast and uh, problems arise. So, I think at this point we should um, also mention our thanks for our buddy Ned Hurley. Um, because there is not a lot of... I don't know if you know this, but for games that are old enough to vote, there is sometimes not a lot of, you know, um, ability... To play those, um, and Ned provided us with um, like screenshots and playthroughs of a slightly glitchy but not incomprehensibly so, uh, like a playthrough of the game. So, shout out to Ned for all because, of his help. Thank you, Ned. Let's give him a round of relatively quiet applause. We'll edit in, Mike. 
Um, can we ask if you do know how he was able to get it to run? Is he using emulators or uh, he does he said have old he was, computers? Or? Yeah, he was using a um, at the like an actual gingerbread man disc running through a Windows XP emulator, and he said it would probably run better on Windows ninety eight. Um, or an emulator of that, but he done didn't have currently have access to that. Yeah, um, yeah. I I pulled out my Gingerbread Man um, disc and purchased a disc drive, but it needed OS nine, and it turns out new computers don't come loaded with OS nine anymore. <laughs> I I tried to run it, but um, I do not have a first pressing of Gingerbread Man with the CD ROM. Um, capabilities on it, so I was not able to get it to run at all. Yeah, that's was, that's another thing that makes it more complicated. More complicated than the other CD-ROMs they put out, like uh, Freak Show or Bad Day on the Midway, was that it wasn't a game. Um, as far as I understand it, it was, like, quite literally an enhanced CD. So it was still relying on the music files from the disc itself, that when put into a normal CD player would just play the songs. Yeah, Quake, Quake uh, in 1996 did something like that too. Yeah. Even um, some uh, PlayStation games did that, where you put them in your PlayStation, it would play a game, put it in a CD player, it would play music. Yeah, so it wasn't entirely something new, and that's probably where the term CD-ROM came from, because you know it uses other data on the disc, which is music, and you can use that CD as a normal CD anyway. Yeah. Um... I don't think we emphasized enough how weird it is that Todd Rundgren is on this album. Um, Hello, it's me, Todd Rundgren. Something. Anything. So um, does anyone know how Todd got involved in this project? I do, but does anybody else know? I do not. I do not. Okay, I so this was actually something that, this is something that came up recently. What the residents would do anytime some kind of major performer or major band was touring in the area, they would send them a fax and invite them um, to the studios to, you know, maybe discuss collaborations or, or something like that. And for a lot of um, groups, like Fleetwood Mac, for example, they'd say, all right, cool, thanks, but no way. But sometimes people like Todd Rundgren said, sure, and came by and, collaborations happened out of that of course he was apparently very confused about the whole affair but apparently not too <laughs> confused to be on three tracks um, yeah he, he knocks it out of the park on this album as well yeah it's it's it sort of seemed like he reached out to them himself by the like the intensity with which he kind of portrays these characters yeah, he, he i'm imagining to... a world in which stevie nicks collaborated with the residents and I think I know where I'm going to go when I die if I'm good <laughs> I'll mark that down for you and make sure that uh, the funeral director knows about that um, so yeah Gingerbread Man was a whole lot of collaboration and multimedia stuff and of course if it's the residents there's usually some kind of live rendition and this was no exception so it was re the content was revisited for the shows, um, the Halloween shows at the Fillmore, um, as we sampled earlier, and later they had these animations made by a 
fellow named Doug Carney for a few of the for a few of the characters, um, which used a blended technique uh, that incorporated the bus made by Lee Barbier onto like larger moving images and stuff like that. And those were put onto Icky Flicks, which was a DVD containing many a flick, all of which were decidedly icky. And they took that Most on tour. Of them were icky. They weren't even wrong when they named it that, but I love it. <laughs> I thought it was quite nice. I liked it. Um, Don't worry. But it was gross. And <laughs> Yeah. And a lot of the videos from the Icky Flicks DVD seem pretty popular on YouTube. And I think the Gingerbread Man is no exception. But the thing is, it only shows a few of the characters when there are way more with a lot more story than you would actually think. And uh, the video cuts off at what I think is the most significant part of the album, which is the inner thoughts. It just sort of focuses on the initial musical bit, which for, you know, a video that's trying to get the gingerbread man across makes sense but you do miss out on that if you just watch the 10 minute video simply uh has an acute anxiety disorder really i think so i might be i might be going on a limb here but i think i think she might be a little nervous about some things that are going on in her life namely everything (laughs) uh which is just evidenced by you know just basically the entire song after the ginger's lament bit or not Ginger's Lament, Ginger's theme bit, is uh, racing thoughts, obsessive thoughts that, you know, anyone who has any kind of anxiety is would be familiar with. Like, she says specifically, in and out, in and out, in and out, how many times do I think in and out, in and out? Like, that's just textbook anxiety. Specifically, I get OCD vibes from it with the ruminations and just, like, the, these obsessive thoughts you can't stop because the more, you know, the thing is, you want to stop a thought, so you say, stop thinking about pink elephants, which of course makes you think more about pink elephants, and I think that's a, a I think that the, the basis of her problem there is that she's obsessing over whatever thought occurs to her, which is from anything but from what color she's weaving as her job, you know, she's the weaver, to, I think my kid is going to be slaughtered in the streets. Yeah, she thinks about it in kind of, in this way that is both horrifying and quotidian. Um, Like, and she seems kind of unbearable to be around. Because on top of being anxious, the vibe I get from her story is that she's also just so overwhelmingly... Overbearing. Yeah. 
Oh no, say one thing that I love about the flow and just, I guess, the way that this track was written is that the, you know, one thought, as you're saying, one thought leads to the next, leads to the next in such an organic way as far as, you know, starting with something menial like, I'm doing a repetitive task to, gosh, I'm seeing the same color and it's not the right color. And then from there, it's, where's her husband? And then from where's my husband, it's, you know, I know he loves me, but there's always a but. And then from where's my husband to where's, or uh, maybe that is Ken her husband or is Ken the kid? Um, I, I that's actually something I'm a little unclear about. Um, like but maybe Ken's the kid, but I, I guess it just it goes. I had assumed Ken's the husband because she talks about uh, I know he loves me, but. But it's just the way that the the whole anxiety just builds from this tiny little and spirals and spirals. And anybody who knows anybody who suffers from anxiety knows that that is such a classic way that it manifests. And it's one of those. It just goes to the genius of the residents as far as being able to oh, personify that so clearly, whether you realize it's happening or not. Uh. I, I I may or may not know somebody who suffers from anxiety. <laughs> and that person may or may not be me, but I don't know who or who it may not be. It's one of those classic mysteries. Uh, in any case... Actually, uh, you, you could probably make that two people because I do too. Woohoo! Ooh, anxiety buddy. Anxiety Gonna podcast, go out on a limb and an say... Podcast about the <laughs> people in the world um, might have anxiety. Does it, what is anxiety? I'm saying it. It's something people might have where maybe they're maybe. nervous. Or they maybe they're nervous. It? Maybe they're they're fine. But you know, no, basically just like again, like you said, like the, the, the way the thoughts build up on each other and one thing snowballs. It snowballs. I think would be the term for it. Like obviously, what she's saying, in and out, in and out. She's specifically referring to the motion of the weaving, but in a more abstract sense, it's also that how often do I think, or how many times do I think these thoughts over and over and over again? How many times am I going to think about this guy following my kid, or how my husband can't really help me, or uh, you know, where where is this person, where is that person, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not so much, she is saying how many times do I think, or how many times do I have to do this weaving, 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 but how many times do I have these thoughts over and over and over Again. Check it out. One last thing to, to touch on that is that I feel like the act of weaving is such a repetitive motion that all you're left to do is be alone with your thoughts in that case, which is going to lead to more and more anxiety. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like, you know, like showering. It's like, you know, you're just sitting there, you're not yeah. really doing much else that you need to think about. So what do you do? You think. Yeah, and like kind of the numbness of of repetition creates this like an open space where it's, it's sort of like if you have like a run in a pair of tights and <laughs> you know one little thing means like pretty much you have uh like breakaways <clears throat> um and how it sort of unravels the whole thing which is very convenient in terms of uh linguistic little puns or whatever uh, with the fact that she's the weaver you know her thoughts sort of unravel mm-hmm 
and you know, here we have in in the story, the in-game story, she's talking about like she's she doesn't really have like a great marriage, like it's an okay marriage, but it says, but this minor mental aberration was mild compared to the webs she spun concerning the safety of her children. They were never far from her thoughts and never far from an accident by death or etc. And it again, the obsession. Like, I can keep bringing it back to this, but it's, like, almost like the residents were, like, here's a woman, and we're going to call her Mrs. OCD, because that's literally just that. Like, this, she doesn't, like, it says, then later on, she, she never completely believed her daydreams, but she tried and tried and tried and tried. Like, it's just this, you can't, st the more you try to stop it, the more they continue. And she's just having these terrible, all-consuming thoughts, which are probably, like like we've said, driven on in part by the repetitive nature of her work yeah um also i love the language they use in the story um it sounds a lot like i don't know some of the stuff that comes later as their work gets darker um with her daydreams of tiny bodies blanketed by blood or ch cherubic ch cherubic every time something starts with ch i can't pronounce it um cheeks gagging on golf balls like it's horrifying, but also kind of funny. The use um, of alliteration through yeah, that's what all I was about through to say. Gingerbread Man is it's it's amazing. It all is. the back Which of the I box quotes and everything is now that I think about it, and this is also something that just occurred to me, I almost harkens back to the original like children's story, children's rhyme and nature, because you find a lot of alliterations and in children's things, like think Dr. Seuss, for example. I feel like if you looked at a Dr. Seuss book, you'd find a lot of alliterations. Yeah. So I think that harkens back to that. Yeah, I feel like the Weaver's story, um, like, in in the game itself and the imagery they use in there, I thought it was pretty illuminating compared to um, her video. Because you see these, like, shots in the video itself of all these, like, weird, expanding worker faces Sorts, like mm -hmm. all sorts of shifting. I had no idea what that was about, but then the CD-ROM came to light. Yeah, yeah. Which that's another thing, right? So you, you, she's having these thoughts. She's doing this work, and she's completely overwhelmed. Which you know, she's talking about how her husband tries, but he can't really help her. And she says, "I need someone to help me." And also in the CD-ROM, you see these these patterns, and the patterns are all. Uh, if I recall correctly, Soviet patterns from the 20s and 30s. Yeah, so the background images that um, certain keys will pull up are these Soviet textiles um, that were mm -hmm. used as propaganda back, yeah. back in the 1920s and 30s, yes. And again, in her story from the game, it also mentions that uh, this inclination towards romance usually came cloaked in the form of her strongest belief in the cause of the worker. So she's also a little bit of a socialist. Which is so uh, awesome, um, yes. because they, the way they use it with her character is that exactly she cares so much about the worker and you know it's so important to her, but only because it's entirely self-serving. Huh. Yeah, she wants someone to help her. So if there's you know workers and everyone's helping one another, then there's going to be someone more specifically helping her from down below or wherever she you know what i mean does that make sense it kind of sounds like i was talking out of no i think that totally makes sense that's basically what uh ginger says at the end of the album 
Yeah. I think it's she feels so overburdened by life that it's like a like a job of her own to even remain alive. Yeah. Poor thing. Do we want to mention as well where these stories are coming from? So with all these stories um, that are in the game, it's complicated because I didn't know most of these existed until about four days ago. <laughs> so each character within the CD-ROM has a story that is only revealed after um, an extended period of interaction and then clicking on some icons um, and you have to interact with two characters um, to the completion of their track and then you can click on some icons and their story shows up. Um, and I, I just didn't know they existed and most people didn't and we're working on getting that to be not a thing that goes on anymore because I feel like they're pretty important to the characters. But as it turns out, in the Fillmore 97 shows, the three characters they cover the songs of there, which were the aging musician, the sold out artist and the old woman, they all had these intros that happened to be the songs, like the stories for the songs from the CD-ROM. So that's a little bit about that. I'm glad that we uh, found out about those after we uh, drafted out our little outline for this episode and we're all <clears> set <throat> to record and then that just information bomb dropped right before him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, choosing, I'm choosing to ignore it and go on with my own interpretation. <laughs> the wrong interpretation. <laughs> but wasn't it wasn't it good old Ned too that found these? Yes. Yeah. Was Ned. Oh, yeah, some more credit to him. Genius. Oh, it's so interesting okay. looking at the screenshots of them. They seem so out of place. Like these really were meant to be hidden in the CD-ROM. These were not meant for anyone just to uh, just to find and see the you know. Plain they, I white think they text want you to come to your own conclusions first, forced. and then they tell you what the idea was behind it, but. I think that also has to do with the nature of the tracks because the vocals on it are very low for the most part. They're added texture, and so you yeah. pro you'd have to read the lyrics and read the text on the screen um, and refer to the imagery they use to even begin to craft your own interpretation of it. Um, and I think the stories, I see them more as just interpretations of their own because some of them are super direct and some of them aren't. <clears throat> but I think the uh, topics mentioned in the stories can all be kind of inferred from the imagery they use. I think that The Weaver is a really good track to open the album on because yeah. the, the fact that she has these very uh, obsessive thoughts, um, it sort of establishes when you start hearing her her inner monologue that you're you're listening to her thoughts and not something she's just saying out loud yeah um, so by the time the next song comes on you you have an understanding that oh this is you know the person's inner thoughts they're not saying this out loud <clears throat> yeah and i never thought about it like that before but it does help clarify especially because in the audio style the thoughts all merge into each other um, and they kind of come to a, a peak and then it leads us into the next track, which on the album itself 
is the dying oil men, but well, I don't think we're getting on, getting to that one. Can I say real quick one really nice way that they help differentiate as well between the kind of inner and outer monologue is parts that are sung are presumably the way someone is outwardly expressing themselves versus Ooh. the spoken parts are the <clears throat> inner thoughts and monologue not not meant to be heard by anyone else yeah wow yeah I like that that is so true Sparky is galaxy brained shout out shout I've... out to Sparky <laughs> and again but what's you know, anyone who knows me knows I tend to listen a lot more to music than lyrics. And again, I've had this album a minimum 15 years. And it wasn't until I was invited to uh, talk on this podcast that I actually started reading the lyrics. I had no idea. I had no clue what any of these things were because, um, you know, I would sing along to the sung parts and then the rest becomes more music texture, vocal texture, as opposed to something that really jumps out at you and once you go read them you realize oh crud this is some dark stuff <laughs> yeah not that i would have expected any different than residents i wasn't expecting especially the 90s of, uh, yeah especially for the 90s and especially post post freak show pre pre wormwood pre um bad day it's yeah, that, some heavy stuff 90s in general those they were pretty heavy with the stuff they did catch me my jinko jeans they're brutal listening to gingerbread man you already know what's going on one other thing that i was kind of realizing as well um just the other day was every character every persona on this album they are all um they're all middle-aged or elderly Hmm. There's, no, there's no young people on this album and I was wondering from a writing context if these were feelings and anxieties and fears that the residents themselves were feeling during this time because we don't know exactly how old they are or would have been but we know that in 94, 95 would put them probably in their you know, mid to late late 40s and I was wondering how much of this album was really an observation of themselves and the people around them and the fears and anxieties that people reach when they approach middle age I think that um, actually is something that comes up in the next track we're covering which is the sold out artist so let's say let's get into that so we shall out in the street and under the sun I kissed his feet and loaded his gun Sooner or later everyone does Everybody feeds the fat boy So, basically, the deal with the the sold-out artist is that I, from what I can gather, he used to be like a a counterfeit art 
maker? Is there? I know there's a term for that, but he would essentially make fakes of all the great paintings. Art um, what? Kind of like an art thief. Well, wouldn't an art thief kind steal of. the originals rather than yeah. reproduce them? He was just, just like, <laughs> sort of. just like a counterfeiter. Yeah. Um, and like an Animal Crossing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're crazy red from Animal Crossing. Uh, and I think what seemed to happen, according to his story, he would do these perfect replicas that nobody could tell from the originals until he would paint these vampire bat faces over, um, as the residents say, over the faces of the Mona Lisa, the Blue Boy, and all the others. Um, and I think there's a very simple way of seeing this, which is from the perspective of him being a cynical artist. Um, but this also leads me to kind of the perspective that the residents could be taking with the Gingerbread Man album as a whole, which is them observing people around them um, and people maybe that run in similar circles to them. I can definitely see the residents running into these types in the art world. Uh, you know, people who just think the world is garbage and it's all meaningless um, and become really bitter through that but also the residents through reflecting these sorts of people and these sorts of mindsets differentiate themselves uh, because you know the sold out artist is making counterfeits and reproducing art and gaining success from it well the residents sort of do a similar thing, right? You take the American Composer series, which is music about music. It's all covers. And um, then they did it visually with Meet the Residents. Yeah. Uh, which leads me to the topic of vampires. See, the sold-out artist cannot shut up about vampires. In his mind... <laughs> a vampire. Everything is a vampire. Me, vampire. You, Vampire. His so idea is artist actually just a moody teenager? Ooh, not actually middle-aged. She's just a teenager in disguise. So the thing with vampires and so that artist, he thinks everybody is sucking on something. You know, everybody engages in a little bit of vampirism in, in some kind of way. And he thinks that by painting vampire bats over the faces of all the old masters makes him really no different but more honest and self-deceiving and it seems that he's had a great deal of success through this and has isolated himself from all the other artists he knew because it seems that he believes them to be just as you know they he believes them to be vampires too like everybody is copying the the greats and just not admitting to it but there's i think there's more to it because the other thing that he focuses on which is in the second half of his track really is he talks about ted williams and ted williams is a kind of hero to the artist like he talks about um I don't know. I don't. I don't understand baseball terms, um, which makes me sort of ashamed to live 
in the place where the Royals won the World Series a couple years ago, and I don't even know baseball terms, but he says uh, he hit 406 in 1941, could have sat out the last game with a 3.995 and gone in the book as 400, but he played and he went four for five. Um, And he says, Ted Williams never sucked. And that's what I like really about this track is the residents could have easily just made it be like, he has no hope in the whole wide world. There's nothing good to him. But instead, they give him something to to look up to, you know, because with baseball, you can't really fake being good at baseball. You either are or Alex you aren't. Rodriguez did it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I'm think. Sorry, Alex Rodriguez. You're I, not I think, sorry. <laughs> I think you're spot on. They gave him. He's so cynical, so negative, so against every single artist and creator and person out there, except he has this one bastion of light, this one beacon of goodness, and that was presumably someone who we idolized growing up, Ted Williams. And to translate those baseball stats for you, what that's saying is that he had a really good score, Mm -hmm. and he could have sat out his last game and ended with just a great... Uh, yeah, a great yeah, score, a and great, then he went ab- and decided and went, to be exceptional. And he was not satisfied, and he wanted to be exceptional. And going four for five, that brought his average up. So instead of resting on his laurels with a great average, he went and hit four more dingers and brought his average up even higher. Yeah, yeah, that's what I kind of assumed. I just numbers. Um, and uh, uh, Ted Williams uh, took. Mm, go ahead. I do like that mindset of, like, don't settle for what you've already got. Settle for the best you can get. Yeah, which is sort of contrary to what the sold-out artist seemingly has done. If he's got the talent to recreate the works of the greats to the point where nobody can tell the difference until he makes his specific mark on it, you know, he's he ha- he already has this ability. He already knows how to reproduce all this great art and it seems to be nothing for him. He talks about like doing new descending a staircase like it's nothing. Um, yeah, it, it's like, you know, you, you can do this. You could probably even make a huge collage if you wanted to, but what the hell is he sitting here like remaking them, just putting bad faces on them? Yeah, because he sees no point in it. But with baseball, um, like there's this urge to go above and beyond with Ted Williams. Um, but... What's interesting uh, about Ted Williams is that he actually sought out tips from the greats himself. You know, he just went up and asked. So there's this kind of parallel where, oh God, he'd probably lose it if you if the sold-out artist knew this, but in a sense, he was still sucking on the works of the greats, but he still had to be good enough to replicate it. Of course, his sort of elevation, you know, he's, he's taking... Ted Williams to the level of this kind of god. Uh, at one point, I actually misheard a section of the album, and I thought he said, Ted Williams, he was a saint. So some of my interpretation comes from that. He elevates Ted Williams to a kind of god figure and just keeps him in this simplified image. Um, it's it's a lot like, uh, you know, those, those cliche sports movies um, where just... The, the art the art of sportsmanship is just this very 
pure ideal. Um, and he sort of sees Ted Williams in that way, even though the rest of his worldview is so cynical, he still, he sees baseball and like that art as this very pure, not vampire-y um, ideal. Yeah, and I was wondering, like, what is the deal with Ted Williams? What, like, what is art? What does art have to do with baseball? What does art have to do with vampires? Or what does baseball have to do with vampires? And I learned this through, um, through the story, um, and through the Fillmore 97 reading of it. They said that the artist always loved to say that no one had ever used a bat better than Ted Williams. Ah. Mm. And then I got it. Vampire bats. It's vampires. Vampire bats. But they're all vampires too. I like that he seems to have some kind of uh, East Coast accent. That That's just kind of delightful to me. What you know about East Coast accents? I don't know. There's so many of them. That's why I said the East Coast. I know. I'm just messing with you. Right. Um, you baseball fiend, you. Uh, and there's all these like little in in the CD-ROM. You can make all these different images appear, but the text that comes with um, with certain keystrokes is kind of interesting. Uh, most of it is nonsense, but I feel like there's some meaning to be found in it. Um, if I may put on my tinfoil hat here. Um, okay. So it's like, morbid growth is proud of flesh, which sort of is like, I don't know, it seems cancerous. You know, like this horrifying thing that it could be taken to be his career. Um, there's sort of a, a pride in it having grown so enormously based on such a cynical mindset. Um, and any pride in it is inescapably attached to the way in which it's inherently kind of an evil thing. Um, and then there's Sing a Song of Sackcloth, which is based on another nursery rhyme. I believe it's called Sing a Song of Sixpence. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but sackcloth is, I believe, worn in, in the Bible... It's worn as a sign of uh, shame and repenting. So this, in a way, is his song of sackcloth. He's repenting for all of his cynicism and hatred and cruelty by talking about how how much he admires Ted Williams. Um, and then there's Deceivers of Self, Sell Salt, which... A salt seller isn't anything, but he is a deceiver of self. He still sustains himself on all of his works that he doesn't seem to have any faith in. Um, and he sells it to people who really don't pick up on it. They don't realize, and they see him as being amazing while never truly getting at um, the meaning behind his works. You see it in the video... Um, where all these art types are standing around in a gallery, pondering, as one must do with modern art. You have to sit there and stroke your chin about it. Um, and then there's this next one which says, There's a gudgeon born every minute. And a gudgeon is just a kind of common fish 
So I think he sees himself as being above them. So, yeah, I think well, it's interesting. Fish are meant to be caught. You bait oh. and catch your fish. Yeah. I think the yeah. idea that there, there's, as P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every minute, and this is just, you know, he baits up with his art, and they we just know bite. he's successful. Yeah. He knows that he's going to next to New Descending into Staircase and sell it for a hundred grand. Yeah. People buy into his, into his art, whether they truly understand it or not. Yeah, I think especially the example of New Descending a Staircase, because Duchamp really overturned the art world. People were <laughs> enthralled by New Descending a Staircase, but they also really hated it. Um, there was, like, so many articles referring it to, like, shingles descending a roof. <laughs> like, it was just not well received. But it changed the way people thought about art altogether. And then the sold-out artist is here like, whatever, I'll do that next. Like, like the way somebody would choose what they'd eat for lunch. Well, if you've ever looked at, uh, if any of the listeners have looked at New Descending Staircase, it is impossible to understand. It is impossible to comprehend what is happening in that painting. Yeah, and as, in the game... As, rela they as relating to the title, New Descending a Staircase. Yeah, in the in the game itself, there's actually a picture of the sold-out artist version of it, and there is a vampire bat face put in there, but... Um, I'm curious to know where it would be put. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like up in the right corner. <laughs> but there's no discernible face. But I think he doesn't even care that there's no face in it, and he knows the people that are going to pay a hundred grand for it aren't going to care either. Yeah, it, it's 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 like how people, you know, they pay like a million just for like this thing. It's just two colors on one canvas. It's, hey, what I mean is like blocks hey. of color. I know, <laughs> and I know what artist you're talking about. Back off. <laughs> color field paintings. <sighs> color field paintings are important. They're important, I, I... but importance doesn't always well... sell for a million dollars. Don't try and trash modern art. Yeah, especially on a residence podcast. I think you're not gonna—that's not gonna go over too hot. Because I mean, there are people who spent a hundred thousand, a hundred grand on a uh, refrigerator. Um, and I mean, if I had a hundred grand, I would totally buy that refrigerator. But I'm sure this there is are like other... some random stuff inside. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure it's about the you refrigerator. know, other people who aren't residence fans would think that's pretty ridiculous price but we see the value in it because we all buy into it i think mm -hmm. a lot of the characters in the game not in the game in the album experience a kind of personal death that isolates them from everybody else so with the sold out artist it seems that he sucked up to somebody long enough to get his way to the top and he realized once he was at the top that it was all kind of meaningless to him but I also think it's important for the residents as artists to be comment commenting on this, um, because clearly if somebody's willing to pay a hundred grand for it, there's a chance, you know, for a hundred grand for some piece that he makes, um, that the sold out artist makes, there's a chance that it could mean something. I mean, the art world, especially at that level, can be pretty cynical, but art as a whole, I think the residents recognize very well, even modern art can hold deep, sincere meaning. 
Um, and the sold-out artist has no way of perceiving that, because he's so lost in his own cynicism that he can't perceive anything else. But maybe he's playing on the cynicism of the art community, in the sense that, I mean, now this is my cynicism, but I feel like a lot of people spend a lot of money on art that they don't get it. They want it because it's the hot thing to have. Yeah. And may maybe for him, it's the, you know, man, I can... I can sell anything to anybody at this point. They're going to buy it. They're going to spend buku bucks, and they don't truly understand that it's a slap in their face, not mine. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if that his kind of transformation as a person came from the fact that he realized nobody got the meaning of what he was saying. Exactly. I think that's... I... Yeah. 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 Um, I like how... Compared to the other stories in this album, um, the sold-out artist is probably one of the least dark stories. Because in the end, he he sort of has this mood like, you know what, I might have sucked up, but hey, I'm getting a hundred grand for this, so... Yeah. No, Everybody might hate that. me, but I'm making money, and what they hate but... <laughs> is that I managed to succeed with my cynicism. Basically, is like, you know, I sucked up to get here, but hey, now people are sucking up to me. So it, there's a kind of humor to that, even so it is still cynical, but there, there's a, a lighthearted aspect to it buried within that cynicism that uh, I like because it contrasts a lot with the rest of the album, which is just ugh, dark. Yeah. Thank you all for joining us on part one of our two-part Gingerbread Man episode. Tune in in two weeks to learn about that song and The Butcher. Thanks! Mm -hmm.